0: begin our exploration of the Old Testament by looking at the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, what we commonly call the prehistorical part of the Bible. Now, anybody ever heard of, of Malcolm Gladwell? You familiar with this guy? He's a, he's a writer, he's a thinker, an author, and, um, and he's got this formula that he uses to help determine whether or not somebody is an expert. Are you familiar with the formula? You know what it is? Just shout it out. 10,000 hours, right? You, you, you've got to spend a focused 10,000 hours on a particular skill or researching a particular topic before you're an expert. And I, I might be expert in a few Bible-related things, but I can tell you there's, there's nothing that I have more invested in than the opening chapters of our Bible, because I think that they are the most important chapters in the good book. They set up for us who God is, and who we are in relationship to God. They frame everything. And one of the things that people so often misunderstand about these, these stories is they, they read them as though they're out of a history textbook, and they read them through a like, like a, an A&E sort of lens, like they're watching an expose. Now, there are historical books in our Bible, but these are pre-historical books, meaning they're not concerned primarily with dates and times. These earliest stories in our Bible are concerned with relationships, and primarily the relationship that we have to God. And in the beginning of the Bible, God is revealed to us as a, a maker, a creator, and of course, most people, when they think about God, they kind of have this uh, sort of Zeus-like image of God in his white robes and big gray beard, judging everyone. But the image of God as a judge doesn't show up till much later. And so, if we're to appropriately understand who God is, we got to let God teach us about God's self on God's own terms. And God decides that the first thing we should know about Him is that He makes things, and He makes us to be like Him. We are imprinted with His likeness, His image, His vocation. And everything in these first few chapters is really about that. So there's five stories that matter. The story of the Garden of Eden, the story of Cain and Abel, the story of the founding of the first city, uh, the story of the great flood and Noah, and then lastly, the story of the Tower of, of Babel. Now, there's other stories in there, but these are the, the five major ones. And what I want you to understand is that these are really stories about you and me. These are stories that are instructive for what it means to, to be a human being. A man, a woman, a boy, a girl, a husband, a wife, whatever. And, and, and so we've got to understand that, that when the Bible tells us the story of the Garden of Eden, for example, and, and, and it tells us that, that the first human couple was Adam and Eve. We've got to understand that that, that that word Adam literally means man. And that word Eve literally means woman. That Really, this is a story about man and woman. This is a story about you and me, about this man, about all men, about this woman, about all women. It's a story in which we can see ourselves repeating their mistakes and being given the same opportunities. And, and we've got to figure out what we're going to do to come under God's authority and be changed. Um, I think that's really critical. Now, one, one word you've got to learn is a word I, I don't like. This, this word makes me mad. I get grumpy when I hear it. I am offended by this word, and if you know me, you know I'm not offended by much. I am the offender, not the offendee, but um, I hate this word. But it's the right word. It's the right word if we're going to look at these portions of the Bible academically. It's the right word if we're going to look at these portions of the Bible um, anthropologically. And the word is myth. Ah. Uh, If you come to me and you say, oh, the Bible is a myth, I'm going to punch you. (laughs) Probably somewhere soft and probably round. You're going to get it. I hate that word. I'm offended when people say that. I think that's totally ridiculous. But, but in the academic understanding of the term, when we're thinking critically, a myth is something that never was but always is. Now, it may be that there really were historical people by these names. I I tend to think probably there were. So it's really the back half of that definition that I think is important for us today. These are stories about what always is about what all men and all women and all people will wrestle with for all of time. These are stories about how God deals with his people and how God reaches out to his people over and over and over again. There are stories, man, yours and mine. So again, real quick, there's five that matter. There's the garden of Eden. We'll use use geographies to refer to all these. So there's the garden. And then there's Cain and Abel who have a fight in in a field a garden, a field. Cain leaves then to found the first human city. Garden, a field, the city. Then God sends a flood to cover the earth, the oceans. And last but not least, there's a story about the tower. The garden, the field, the city, the ocean, and the tower. In the Garden of Eden, one of the things that we so often fail to appreciate is, is the quality of life they had there. Like the word garden, if you translate it literally, it means paradise. God created paradise for the first people to live in. And there they, they had work to do. That work was the good kind of work, you know, where, where you feel good while you do it. You could invest yourself in it. You could be creative, you, you could be passionate, you could apply uh, your imagination. Adam is given the task of naming the animals, meaning he gets to cooperate with God in the process of creation. Adam and Eve are told that, 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 that their love and passion is a central part of God's plan for them. That they're meant to fill the earth and subdue it, to have dominion, to expand the borders of of God's perfect paradise all over the planet. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty good gig. And they're told that they can do essentially whatever they want, however they want it. That the natural outpouring of their instincts will be pleasing and acceptable to God. There's just these two trees they can't touch. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, And the tree of eternal life. Now, we don't know how long they went before they touched those trees. Maybe it was 10 years, maybe it was 50 years. Maybe maybe it was one of those amazing things where it was a thousand years. If it was me, I'd have been five minutes, you know? All right, Dave, you can do anything you want. Just don't touch that tree. Dave, I just said, oh, sorry. But what happens is uh, Adam and Eve are visited by a serpent. The serpent comes to Eve, isolates her. The serpent begins to speak to her. Now, please see this correctly. When, when we read the word in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, especially in the latter New Testament, when we read the word serpent, it's not a cobra. It's a serpent with legs that speaks. It's a, it's a dragon. A dragon that appears throughout the pages of the scriptures, evil personified. So the serpent comes to Eve and says, did God really say you're not supposed to eat this fruit? Well, yeah, you know, like whatever, you know. Did He say, did He really say that you would die? Well, I don't think you'll die. I think, I think God's, I think God's maybe a little jealous of you because people look up to you. I mean people people recognize your wisdom. And and if you if you eat this fruit, you're you're going to have everything that God has all on your own. So Eve eats from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then she shares that with her husband, and the two of them then in their disobedience they they're startled. because they realize they're naked. They're exposed, they're vulnerable, and that makes them embarrassed. They don't know how to be around each other because they're ashamed of how God made them. They're ashamed of who they are. And now that they have this, this knowledge, this insight, they run. And they hide. Do do you see why I think these are really stories about us? Maybe you've stood in front of somebody you loved and you've been ashamed of who God made you to be. Maybe you've been ashamed of how you look or how you are. Maybe you're embarrassed. Maybe you've overshared and you feel vulnerable and exposed and and you're not sure if it's okay anymore. So you, you hide. You run, and you hide. Maybe you've gone looking for forbidden knowledge. Your wife's purse, your husband's computer, your children's bedroom. Maybe you saw a performance review on your boss's desk and thought you'd just have a peek. But then you, you get that knowledge, and all of a sudden you realize some knowledge can be destructive. Some knowledge isn't meant for us. Some knowledge can hurt us because we gained it inappropriately. And so we hide, we recoil, we run away. But what does God do in this story? The story of the garden, God pursues Adam and Eve. There's some consequences for their sin, but never forget the fact that he didn't let them go. He gave them a way to be together and a way to be with him. And this is such an important story for us. God gave us a paradise, and we abused it, asking ourselves, well, what if I just ignore this one little boundary? It's not really that big a deal. I think, I think that's what happens a lot in our marriages, as we think, yeah, it's pretty good, but these boundaries don't really apply. Boy, well, sometimes we violate financial boundaries. Sometimes we violate athletic boundaries or educational boundaries, because we think they're just, they're just so small. It doesn't really matter. But the consequence of violating those boundaries is embarrassment. It's humiliation. It's, it's shame. It's isolation. And we want to run and hide and be alone and be away from everybody. And God's not going to let us do that. He's going to keep coming for us saying, we got to make this right. Well, Adam and Eve do reconcile with one another, with God. And they, they pick up and they move forward. They have children. They have two sons at first, Cain and Abel. Cain works out in the fields, and Abel works with livestock. And the time comes that that God requires an offering from Cain and Abel, and and Cain gives an offering of of grains and things from the fruit of the ground, and, and the Lord is not pleased with Cain's offering. Pay attention to that language, because we don't have any indication that God was angry with Cain, just that the Lord wasn't pleased with Cain. Abel, on the other hand, gives the best offering, the single greatest offering of which he can conceive, the most pure, precious, well-regarded offering. It's like his heart is just pouring forth in this sort of romantic, passionate plea to God. And the Lord was pleased with Abel's offering. And at that moment, something happens in Cain. Something is exposed in Cain, a pettiness, a smallness, a jealousy, A sneer when he looks at his brother and hates him. This happens to us a lot. We don't put in the effort, and when somebody else gets the accolades, we're angry at them for trying, for investing, for risking, for doing what we could have done, but that we just didn't feel like doing. So like when you apply for a promotion and you don't get it, but you didn't really do all you were supposed to do, and then you go, well, of course, Mr. Perfect's gonna get it. Yeah, of course, the person who put in more effort than you will get the thing, of course. But, but in our smallness, we blame them, we villainize them. We imagine ourselves injured victims. And we do what Cain did. Cain took his brother out into the field and murdered him. Murdered him. This is the long-term result of our envy, of our smallness. Instead of owning up to our responsibility, instead of seizing the opportunity, we just get mad at everybody who does better than us. And the Lord visits Cain and says, where is your brother? Am I my brother's keeper? Yes. This is the answer in the scripture. Yes, you are your brother's keeper. Cain was meant to keep his brother Abel. You and I are meant to keep our brothers also. And who's your brother? Everybody. Everybody. According to the words of God, every human being is made in the image of God. That makes us all brothers or sisters, if you prefer. But the point is that none of us is permitted to hate any of us. Not in the family of God. We are meant to keep and preserve and love one another. Yeah, but, but they're not a Christian. So? Doesn't mean you get to hate them. Ah, but don't you understand? They they think differently than I do. Oh, you mean they think. Fantastic. They feel differently than I do about education politics, gun control. You are your brother's keeper. Every brother kept always, forever. In punishment for his murder, Cain is sent out east of Eden into the land of Nod, a a no place, a wasteland, a, a big nothing. And Cain complains, God, when people find out what I did, They're going to be so mad. They're going to kill me. And the Lord says, no, I will protect you. I'll place a mark upon you. No one will be able to kill you. So Cain leaves, and he goes and he founds the first human city. He and his wife have children. Their children have children. Their children's children have children. We are now in the third episode of these early stories of the Bible. To review, we begin in the garden. Cain and Abel have an altercation in the field, and now Cain founds the first human city. The garden, the field, and the city. Now, in the city, Cain's family begins to do remarkable things. I mean, b- b- baffling things. They, they, they invent metallurgy, cosmetics, uh, stringed instruments. They, they come together in new forms of society and, and government. They, 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 they create weapons. They, they, they keep creating because they're made in the image and likeness of their creator. They're doing what they were supposed to do from the beginning. What they're doing is, is actually really good. The problem is that they're trying to do God's things without God's involvement. They want God's stuff without wanting God. And every time you do that, every time you catch yourself doing that, you're, you're stealing. And when you steal from God, the things that you have They sour. They they pervert. And that's what happens in this first human city. All the good things turn sideways, and that first city deteriorates into wickedness. Every imaginable vice and crime such that God says, I regret ever making people. I think sometimes God must look down on me and go, ah, Dave, oh, you were a mistake, buddy. I mean, you could have maybe kept in the oven for an extra 10 or 20 minutes. You are half-baked, brother. (laughs) Because we, we, we make mistakes. And people wonder, what kind of wickedness did they have? You know, it's not the specifics of their wickedness. They turn on each other, they hate each other, they kill each other, they betray each other, they do all the things, they treat each other like things. I mean, it's not the specifics of their wickedness. It's the fact that they wanted God's stuff without God's involvement. And that always descends into wickedness. It descends into wickedness for us. Family without God. Business without God. Relationships without God. Church without God. And so the Lord sends a a flood water begins to spring up from the ground. It starts to rain. The whole planet for 120 days is covered with water. And only one family survives, that of the man named Noah, a righteous man who pleased God. And God used Noah to rescue representatives of all the animals, which there's a huge ecological message there that we won't go into. But, but you're gonna go back and read these stories this week, and I want you to have enough information to mine into them more deeply. We go from the garden, to the field, to the city, to the ocean, and at the end of this flood, when all the wickedness of the planet has been cleansed, Noah drives his boat into the ground, and the very first thing he does is he makes liquor and get drunk can you imagine what God is thinking? Like, you're the one righteous guy on earth. You're the one guy through whom I can execute my plans, renew my covenant, work to get humanity back, and you're drunk like on day one. And, and he's not just drunk. He's got no pants on. He's naked. Everybody sees. He's like, really? You're, you're the good one? That's like us, man. God gives us a second chance and we blow it at the first opportunity. You get a second chance at work. You get a second chance in your love life. You get a second chance after a heart attack. You, you get a second chance for a second chance after you get second chances on your second chances and you just keep blowing it. And the Lord says, I'm gonna work with you anyway. And you're gonna get another chance. Jesus, later on in the Gospels, He says that we're meant to forgive people who offend us 70 times 7, you know, 490 times. My my math is right there. Math's not my strong suit. 490 times. Some, and that's, because that's how God forgives us. Well, some of you are going, "Uh uh-oh, I'm at about 483. I have seven sins remaining before my punch card is used up. But the truth is that that number isn't an actual number. It's meant to represent that God will always have more forgiveness than we have violations. And we need it, man, because we're going to screw up a lot. But the good news of the gospel of God is that He doesn't give up on us. One time, God did what we want. One time, He said, all right, you're mad at the terrorists. You're mad at the bad people. I'm going to kill all the bad people. That's what we want, right? There's bad people over there. Why didn't the Lord just kill them? Why didn't he take care of the bad people? We have enemies. Why didn't God just remove Al-Qaeda? One time, God does that thing that we all want God to do. And on day one, after, like the very next day, we're all naked, no pants on, glug, glug. And the Lord says, I give you another chance to get it right, and another one, and another one, and another one, and another one. We keep blowing it. And He keeps telling us to try again and try again. In the final episode, in these first 11 chapters, all of the people in this new world decide they're going to put their minds together and they're going to create a tower, which is actually pretty cool. Nothing wrong with making a tower. That's pretty neat. There were probably towers in Eden, Follies we call them. They're architectural features that allow you to look out over the garden and have a vantage point. I mean, they're, they're cool. So now, again, the people are doing once more what they were created to do, make stuff, experience stuff, cooperate, collaborate. But they get it in their heads that this tower is going to be so amazing, so high that from the top of this tower, they will have such perspective that they will no longer need God because they're equal with God. That's the same lie from the garden. And it's a lie that we buy into all the time. Because of my capability, because of my education, because of my wealth, because I'm so good at managing my life and controlling my relationships, I don't really need God. I got everything I want. I got everything I need because I'm a grown-up. I got my big boy pants on. I don't need the crutch of religion. And the Lord looks over and goes, boop. And they bust out in confusion so that they can't understand each other anymore. It's like they're not talking the same language. And I think that's what happens to us when we become infatuated with our own capability, when we become enamored of our own significance, is something comes out of left field and totally bewilders us. Something for which we have no paradigm that we could never see coming just knocks us flat on our butts and we go, oh, maybe I need God after all. And the Lord goes, yeah because this is God's world that the Lord has made, and the Lord has placed us in it for his pleasure and to execute his vision for this planet. And when you get off track from that, things are gonna spin wildly out of control and become terribly confusing. Now there is one other chapter that probably, one other story that probably fits into all this. It's the story of Job, you ever heard that one? The story of Job probably took place before the great flood. And it's, it's, it's weird. It's got some weird stuff in it. God is up in heaven looking down over all the people of the earth, and he sees Job, who's wealthy and influential and wise. Everybody loves Job. He's righteous. He pleases God. And the devil, the, the serpent, comes up to the Lord and says, Hey, I know you like this guy. But the only reason he is good is because he's wealthy. The Lord says, All right, take away his wealth. Let's see what happens. So Job loses everything through a series of calamities and disasters. All his resources, all, everything, it's gone. And he's still good. And so the devil comes back to the Lord and says, Look, I know you're pretty excited about Job, but the only reason he's good is because he's got his family let me take away his family." Okay. Disaster strikes. Job loses his children, his grandchildren, his household. The only thing Job is left with is his wife, who complains at him bitterly for the entire rest of the book. And I like to imagine that Job wishes she had gone too. (laughs) The devil comes back to the Lord and says, Job is good still, huh? Yeah, he's amazing. The only reason Job is still good is because he has his health. Let me take away his health. Let me do it. Let me, let's see what happens. Let me do it to him. And so the Lord relents. And Job breaks out in these horrible sores, these itchy, scabby and pussy, and he's got to scratch himself with broken pieces of pottery. And Job never sins. He never... He never complains. He never turns on God. He never says, what are you doing to me? And Job's got these three friends. They gather around him. They're looking at him. He's uh, quivering in a puddle in the fetal position, bleeding and crying all over the place. And they go, dude, you know why this is happening. You're a sinner. I got those friends. Your problem is you're not good enough. The Lord's getting you. And Job says, I never sinned. Just own up to it, man. You're a dirty, rotten sinner. I never sinned. For 40 chapters, they just beat him up. Until finally, Job looks up to heaven and he goes, God, what? what is happening to me? How could you let this happen? And then God gets angry. I had a low moment this week. I was praying and uh, I I was feeling angry. And I said, I'm really ashamed by this. I said, God, you just, you don't show up for me like you do for everybody else. Like when other people need help, I'm the one that helps them. But you're not helping, and I just feel like a tool and I felt the Lord say, "Boop <laughs> and I was opening up my Bible, and I was flipping through it, and i I felt like He was directing me to job, which is a terrible feeling. If you feel that, you're going to know how bad it sucks and uh and i came to job 40 when god answers job from the whirlwind and i'm sharing this with you cuz i think this this sums up these first 11 chapters cuz these opening stories of our bible are about who god is and who we are in relationship to him they're not historical books they're theological books They're not about dates and times, they're about relationships. And maybe you can relate sometimes to feeling like me or feeling like Job. And this is a pretty good reminder. And I'm gonna read it to you in the way that I think the Lord was saying it to me. Get ready for a difficult task like a man. I will question you and you will inform me would you indeed unknow my justice? Would you declare me guilty so that you might be right? Do you have an arm as powerful as God's? Can you thunder with a voice like His? Adorn yourself then with majesty and excellency and clothe yourself with glory and honor. Scatter abroad the abundance of your anger. Look at every proud man and bring him low. Look at every proud man and abase him. Crush the wicked on the spot. Hide them in the dust together. Imprison them in the grave. And then I myself will acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. Get ready, Dave. And answer me like a man. Because that's what you are. And I am God. You really need to question me so that you can feel good about how holy you are, like you're the good one. Tell you what, Mr. Good Guy, why don't you run out there and tell everybody what's wrong with them? Why don't you find all the jerks, all the abusers, all the sinners, why don't you run out there and tell them how crappy they are Tell them how sick they are. Let me know how that works out for you. And then you can clothe yourself in your own honor (laughs) and spread the abundance of your anger all over. Put it on the internet. Get that chain email going. If you really love the Lord, you'll forward this to 10 people. You do all that stuff and see what it gets you. Cause in the end, it's gonna get you a fistful of dust. That's about what it's worth. But if you do all that and it solves all your problems, heck, I'll bow down to you. But I think you know, the problem, Dave, is that you're not God. these stories are about who God is and who God has made us to be. And we are meant to be like God. And God keeps raising us up. He keeps giving us new chances and new hope. He's putting us on our feet. He wants us to be strong and capable and confident. And, and, and as we're getting stronger and stronger and stronger, all of a sudden we start thinking that maybe, maybe the source of our strength is us. Boop and it all comes crashing down. And whether you're looking in the garden or the field or the city or the ocean or the tower, again and again and again, the Lord is saying to you, I've got good plans for you. I've got good promises for you. We're going to do some stuff together. But the second you decide you're going to do it without me, you're in for a world of hurt, brother. And so my hope For our church, for you, for me, for my children, for everybody, is that as we dive into these stories, we are going to be reminded again and again and again of who God is and who we are in relationship to Him. That we serve God. And when we serve God, He's pleased. He's pleased and He helps, and He redeems, and He restores, and He offers new hope, and new chances, and new opportunities again, and again, and again, and again, as many as we need, and more. Lord, thank You for the privilege of being with You, being in Your house, learning things from Your Word, gaining insights and wisdom. Man, we need wisdom we need hearts that are humble and teachable, where your Spirit can correct us and rebuke us and lift us up and make us strong and make us bold and make us brave. But we got to do those things with you, not apart from you. And though we know that, that's hard to do. So give us humble, teachable, and obedient hearts. In your name we pray. Amen.